Good morning, everybody. It's pretty good. If you have your Bibles, um, take them and turn to Habakkuk chapter 3. I got you. That's page 787. Uh, There are ESV study Bibles around the room. If you don't own one, it's Fondren Church's complimentary copy to you. But don't be just stealing Bibles from the church now. If you've got a study Bible, it's waiting on you somewhere, right? But uh, page 787, if you're intimidated to turn, that'll help you. And we're going to read this passage a little toward the end of the message uh, today. A lot is written in our day, especially in in an era of social media, but a lot is written about what the church is not doing right, right, where the church is wrong. And God's been opening my eyes recently just to the goodness and the beauty of the church. And uh, we're seeing it at Fondren Church. I'm seeing it in my own life, and I need to, you know, I need to. But I just, we're blessed, and um, many of you know, and just want all of our church family to know to continue to pray for Susan and her father. It appears that he's on his uh, last weeks, maybe days or months, we don't know for sure, but I, uh, she's out there, and we'll be out there for several days, and you guys have been praying and have come around us with a lot of love and meals, and I really appreciate that as I stress meals, but our small group and some others have circled up around us. There's so much food at my house, so, so much dessert at my house. I mean, it's hard to, uh, you know, fight the fat, lose the lard, master the midsection. I'm trying to go for Pacquiao here right around this region. And it's hard with the cheesecake and the chocolate chip cookies and all that stuff. But thank you so much for your prayers and just words. And I know Susan loves you. She wishes she could be here today. I've heard from her a couple times already this morning. But she does love you and appreciates the way that you're coming around her. Uh, We're in a series called Hard Questions. I've asserted a couple of times at the out front that the most popular teaching method of Jesus was to teach truth as he responded uh, to questions. And we're doing that. We've tabulated some of your hardest questions. They're increasing in their level of difficulty. We've looked at, uh, are we living in the end times? Is suicide an unforgivable uh, sin? What about those who never hear about Jesus? And today we're going to tackle this question here. If God is powerful, why does he allow tragedy and suffering. And if we were to, it would be, I think, much easier. It would be more innocuous if we could look at the, this question from a philosophical, theoretical, academic standpoint, if we could be uh, factual or logical or keep it at arm's length. But you and I, as we live in this world, we begin to wonder, don't we? Why did my parents get divorced? Why was my daughter killed by a drunk driver? Why do we have to stand at a casket of someone that we love? Why was child abuse a part of my home, a place where I should have been valued and protected? Why was my job eliminated? Why is my marriage on the brink? Why did I have to walk into the the kitchen and see a note on the counter that said, it's over, don't try to reach me, I'm gone. But we don't look at this question just philosophically, theoretically, or academically. We look at it from a standpoint where we know that we've been touched by it. Uh, Live in this world. You're going to have trouble. Uh, We say it often here at Fondren, John 16, 33. There was a day when Timmy Tebow had it painted under his eyes. But Jesus said the first part of that. He said, in this world, you will have, say it, church, you will have trouble. He goes on to say, but I have overcome the world to take heart, not to lose heart. But we can't bypass that first part. In this world, you will have trouble. 
Job, in the book of Job, it said that, man, just as strikes, as, as a strike of fire flies upward, as sparks go upward, so is man born for a day of trouble. And we all know trouble. We all know suffering. No doubt it affects us differently, but it affects us, doesn't it? And it leaves us really raw. It leaves us real. Ever been talking to somebody and they use the phrase, maybe you've, you've said it in your conversation, but someone looks at you and they say, hey, can I be, can I be really honest with you? And there's this, it, there's this implication. Sometimes I get stuck there because I'm like, okay, so you hadn't been honest with me. Or you've been honest, but now you're going to get really honest. Like there's levels of honesty. Are you with me? And suffering, it can do that for us. Suffering gets us at a real, real honest point. I would love this morning to stand up here and just do a bunch of songs. I thought about this. Just do a bunch of songs today and then stand up here and say, everybody go read The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. Because in The Problem of Pain, and I would love for you to do that, by the way. But in The Problem of Pain, you see someone who talks about pain when he was an agnostic. I mean, in the depths of agnosticism and when he became a believer and follower of Jesus. But you see someone just dealing with it because pain, it is a problem. And there's a, each week, I guess, we've been looking at these, uh, answering these questions. We've always kind of looked at, we've been looking at a question under the question. There's one, I believe, that, um, that we have to think about on this one. And that is, is God a good God? If, is, is he, is he all-powerful? Is he all-loving? And it is the, sort of the benchmark of atheism. It's one of the toughest things. If you're, you know, every worldview and everybody's got a belief system, every, everybody's got faith in something, everybody's got a worldview. And every, every worldview, I believe, has something, kind of a sticking point, something that's hard for them. If you talk to a humanist or a naturalist or someone who believes literally in every concept of evolutionary biology to the point that there is no God, they've got some tough things uh, to deal with. Um, how can highly complex interrelated biological systems work to form something as complex as the human eye without there being some type of intelligent designer? That's tough. That's a tough question. And even though this is Fondren Church, in this season of our church, this is um, your third most popular question that you sent me. This is the world's number one most popular question slash complaint against theism, against a belief um, in, in a good God. How can he be all loving? How can he be all powerful? And when you see suffering, what does it do for you? What does it do for your view of God? Is, is God, is he powerless? Is he indifferent? Is he detached from it all? And why would God create a world in which there's suffering and tragedy? I know you've thought of that, right? Why would he, why would he create a world with suffering and tragedy? I mean, if, if I ran the world bad things wouldn't happen to good people. Don't you agree? Bad things would happen to bad people and good things would happen to good people if I ran the world. True story, you're gonna Google it later. I know you are, you're gonna find it's true. A Czechoslovakian woman had found out that her husband had been cheating on her. And she, in her despair and distress, she contemplated suicide. At first, really, honestly, she considered murder. 
And then she contemplated suicide and that's what she chose to do. And from the fourth floor of her Prague apartment window, she jumped. And an amazing fate of nature, she was barely hurt. In fact, she fell on her husband who happened to be walking on the street below, killing him. I mean, isn't that great, ladies? Isn't that great? I mean, that's, that's what I want. When someone does something bad, I want immediately, I want them to be struck by lightning or hit by a flying Czech woman, right? Just immediately, <laughs> right on the spot. A world of retributive justice. But why? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why does God, a powerful God, a loving God, allow tragedy and suffering? It's a difficult question for every believer, for everybody in the world. And it's one of those things that, that we've got to learn to wrestle with. In a world that I would create, good kids would always make straight A's. Faithful spouses would have fairy tale marriages. Churches would be full of good, honest, loving, kind people. Couples who want kids would have triplets. For every drop of rain that fell, a flower would bloom. We have to ask the question, or as we ask the question, why does God allow tragedy and suffering? We think, why didn't he create a world without it? Well, why didn't he create a world without tragedy and suffering? And the short answer is, you ready? He did. He did. A couple of years ago, I think I shared this with some of you before. A couple of years ago, uh, I was in an independent bookseller right here and bought a book entitled Underwater Dogs. And it has brought so much joy to me. Have you seen this? It's a bestseller. It's, it's an award-winning uh, photojournalism book. It's, it's, it's fascinating. Underwater dogs. And now there's underwater puppies that just came out this month. You see? And there's underwater babies for those who teach their children to swim really fast. But it, it, it's something. I, I should have taken the time to put pictures up for you, right? It, it would delight you. But to, to, they're up in my, the books are up in my office. But to see these dogs and now puppies to go under, forget the babies, but to go under the water chasing a tennis ball or whatever and just their, their mouths and the way they're just going after something, it is pure joy. You can't look at it without just your heart leaping. There's just great joy. Here's my point. There's just great joy in the world. I was driving to church this morning and there was someone walking my favorite breed of dog, a golden retriever. I rolled down, I asked them, I have to talk to every golden retriever owner. I rolled down the window and I said, aren't those the best dogs in the world? Which is really a rhetorical question. And they said, this father, daughter, and um, wife, they said, yeah, for the first, but not the first two years. Not the first two years. Those who have a golden retriever know the first two years, hell. Then it becomes heaven. But it's tough early on. But the beauty that God has given us in the people that we love and our pets and our companions and to be able to go on walks. I'm looking at some of you and your sunburned faces this first day of May. And you probably got out and drained every drop of delight in the perfect weather yesterday. And it is a good world. Here's Genesis chapter one. God did create a good world. God saw all that he made and it was very good. The creation account 
tells us that God spoke the world into being. People debate the creative process, but God spoke the world into being. God said this, God said this, and he said it was good, it was good, it was good. And as he looked at all of it, he said, it is very good. God created a good world. James chapter one, every good and perfect gift is from above that comes down from the father of lights with whom there's no shifting shadow, no variance. Every good gift, what are the perfect and good gifts that you're enjoying? That's the world that God made. Where then does tragedy and suffering come from? The first place where tragedy and suffering comes from is this. Some as a result of our own sin. Live long enough and look honestly enough at the world and at your life and your heart and you will learn that causes have effects. Actions have reactions. Choices have consequences. In Galatians 6, it tells us, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Do you know what it says next? For you will reap what you sow. And you and I, we we get fancy. We get fancy with our footwork. We get stretchy and elastic with our honesty and our ethics. But the fact is, we will. You will reap what you sow. Have you learned that? That's good and bad, isn't it, church? It's good, that's good, and that's bad. But some as a result of our own sin. I was on the golf course recently with two young guys and one of them was looking at the other and asked, did you read that Roger Clemens regret letter about throat cancer and about tobacco? And one was telling the other, you man, you've got to read this. I guess they didn't want to tell the preacher about it. I guess preachers don't struggle with tobacco. Is that true? I don't know. And you've got to read this and evidently Roger Clemens wrote this scathing indictment on the use of tobacco and what it can do and what it's done for him and the regrets that he has as as a man. It makes you just want to go buy David sunflower seeds in bulk and chew on them, right? And just to give that stuff up. We reap what we sow. Choices, they have consequences. Actions have reactions. Causes have effects. Some, Some of your tragedy And some of your suffering is the result of your very own sin. Can I get an amen on that this morning? I mean, can you you be honest enough to acknowledge that we bring a lot of our stuff on ourselves? The second source of where tragedy and suffering come from is some as a result of other people's sin. If you're carjacked in a parking lot at a shopping center, that's the result of somebody else's sin. Ever watched um, the show Intervention on A&E? And for some of you, this addiction and the pain is real close. You've been a part of it. But I've watched some of these episodes and you, know, you, you, you see someone's life just, they're just at a, a very low abyss emotionally and just not able to function, not able to contribute because of their addiction. And then you see people in an intervention coming around them and there's this circle of love. 
the people that have probably, like any family, have probably failed them in some ways. I mean, families fail each other, don't we? We, we let each other down, but in this moment of real need, they come around and they all read. Most of them are just reading a transcript. They're reading their hearts on paper. And they're saying to this person, here's what, here's what your life is doing to me. You see, we're more connected than we think. And some of the suffering and the tragedy, in many ways, is a result of someone else's sin in our lives. There's this thing that God gave us called free will. And no one can tackle today's hard question without dealing with this subject. But you see, we do. We all are created with free will. We'll talk about that in a second. Thirdly, some is a result of Satan's attacks. Now, the scripture seems at times to contradict itself. It seems to give us, if you're not careful, you don't dig deeper, it'll give you a confusing picture because the Bible tells us, man, the earth is the Lord. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Psalm 55, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He created the world. He sustains the world. The earth is the Lord's. God is the ruler of the world. And then there are scriptures that tell us that Satan's running the show. And the truth is that he does have limited dominion over this world. And Jesus said to those he loved, his disciples, his followers, he said to his closest guys, hey, I'm sending you out. And a lot of you know this. He said, I'm sending you out as what? As sheep among wolves. How's that gonna work, right? He's saying you better stay close to each other. You better be careful. You better understand your limits. You better understand that the odds are stacked against you. This is hard work. This is a high calling. Peter, one of those disciples, would later say in 1 Peter 5, be sober, be vigilant, be very careful as to how you, you live and walk and move and have your being because there is an enemy and he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. There's a very real enemy who has very real attacks. You've heard me say, if you've been around for a few years, you've heard me say probably repeatedly that I'm not a Satan or demon behind every bush person. Some of us blame our suffering on things that we're doing, self-inflicted suffering, and we, we blame it on spiritual attack. We ought not to do that. But there is a real attack that the enemy brings us. The fourth source of tragedy and suffering, most is because we live in a fallen world. There is... I've said before the meta-narrative of Scripture. There's the creation. That's Genesis 1.31. God said it was all good. But there's the fall. After the creation, there's the fall. Man and woman with free will choose to do things on their own apart from God. There's the fall. There's redemption. Galatians 3, in the fullness of time, Jesus came and he was born and he bore our sin. And there is the consummation when things will be made right. And Genesis 3.18 talks about the thorns and the thistles. And we can look in our world and we can see Genesis 3 uh, lived out. We can see Romans 8 that talks about how the creation groans. It groans like a woman in the pains of childbirth. Great pain. Earthquakes, tsunami, earthquakes in Canton. Okay? My wife went to California, I'm here, we had the earthquake, doesn't make sense. 3.2, what are we hearing? 3.2, who felt it? Raise your hand, did you feel it? Y'all felt, whoa, very good. I feel the earth shake. 
under my feet. Earthquakes, tsunamis, and floods. And we live in a world where the air is polluted, the water is contaminated, the ground is poisoned. It's the world that we live in. It's the result of the fall. Why, if all this is a result of choice, because you and I have a choice. We have a choice. We, we can think about, think about number two. Some is a result of other people's sin. Does God not hear the cry of starving children around the world? But I want to say some human suffering is more the result of human selfishness. Do you know, let me drop some hardcore facts on you. Do you know that the earth produces enough food to feed every man, woman, boy, or girl 3,000 calories a day all over the world? And do you know that one-third, listen, church, one-third of the best-selling books in America this past year and every year that I've looked at recently, a third or more are on losing weight and diet? Do you know that, let's get a little closer to home. Two months ago, you know what most people came to church thinking about? Two months ago today, the first Sunday in February, most of us all around our land, we came to church thinking about the Super Bowl. And we were talking about what? Deflated footballs. We were concerned if you put two footballs up here, the AFC championship game, right? Remember this? New England Patriots and somebody accused Brady and some of those guys of, of you know, slightly deflating a football. And I'm all for ethics in sports. I'm just saying, let's look and see what we're most concerned about. And let's look and see that the scripture never gives us an airtight explanation of why there is suffering. But whatever level we can do to alleviate the suffering, we ought to and we need to. But look at the books that we buy and the conversations that we have and the things that really concern us. Deflated footballs are people that need food. Some as a result of other people's sin. Some as a result of our own sin. Some as a result of Satan's attacks. Most is because we live in a, a fallen world of thorns and thistles, of a creation that's groaning, of a world that's pointing us to the next one. But why did God create free will? This is the moment where I just want to go sit down, right? And you would too. You are seated and you're glad. But why did God create free will? Here's the answer. Because God is love. And what we know distinctively, what we know instinctively, is that love, to be love, has to have a choice. There was a day about 19, 20 years ago when Susan said, I choose you. I take thee, RG. And that brings me great joy and great gladness because there's three billion other guys around. But she chose me. Those of you my age and older remember a, a television show that made it into a movie and back in the late 70s, I think it was early 80s. It was called The Stepford Wives. You guys heard of that? And the Stepford wives weren't really wives. They looked just like wives. They did very wifely things, but they were robots. 
And there, there was a tiny microchip implanted in their brain. They were pre-programmed to do everything that their husbands wanted, to cook the meals that the husbands wanted, to do, to do the household chores like the husbands wanted them to do, to do everything that the husbands wanted. Men, do we want that? Is that what we want? The answer is no, okay? The answer is no. Work with me, guys, okay? Some of you said yes. I mean, you, you can't have it, number one, and you just didn't win for yourself right there at all. But there's something about love, and you know this, right? There's got to be a choice. There's got to be a choice. Now, the question behind that, if I was sipping coffee with you, you'd say, okay, I get that. Can't argue with that. That's pretty solid. Why did he give free will? Because God is love. That's good. I like that. But if God knows everything, if he knows everything, then why did he create us? And then we're left. We're left, we're left with a certain level of existentialism to say, well, why did he create? And I would say, I'm glad he did. I'm glad he decided to choose you and I. I'm glad he, I'm glad he chose to create this world. I really think he did it the same reason a parent decides to become a parent. I had lunch with a couple of Shelton and Mandy on Friday. I think day after tomorrow, they're going in to have a baby. Y'all know we've been having lots of babies at Fondren Church. And Emily will go see him, and Laura will go see him. Occasionally I will, and Susan goes. We just, they're a small group. It's just fun to, to see people when they're having a baby. And you know what? When someone goes in the, the, the room, what do you do? You're just oohing and on. And even if the baby's ugly, you're saying the baby's pretty, right? I mean, it's just, it's just what we do. And we rejoice over a baby. But no one goes in there and says the facts that the U.S. government recently calculated the average cost of raising a child from birth to 18, not counting college, is $249,000. $249,000 for a medium household family. That costs a lot of money. Babies are messy too. Babies spit things out and poop things out and talk back and their favorite word is no and mine. And they began to... to well, they live that out, and they, as they get older, your minivan is full of Honey Nut Cheerios and empty sippy cups rolling on the back of the, the, that van, right? They grow up, and they become teenagers, and they ignore all rules related to curfew and conduct and common sense. And some of those teenagers are boys, hormonal adolescent boys who want to hang out with your daughters, and they will descend like locusts in the kitchen eating all of your food supply, right? But yet, we choose we choose to have babies and when healthy babies are there everybody is doing cartwheels not thinking of the mess not thinking of the trauma not thinking of the spills not thinking of the challenges not thinking of the back talk thinking of the potential and the beauty. Can you follow me there? And so as we begin to round toward home, I want to I use that as I share with you what I think are some important ideas when it comes to loving and knowing God and following him in the midst of tragedy and suffering. Romans 5.5 5 says this, one of my favorite passages, y'all know this, hope 
does not disappoint. And I see that and I think, how can I get that? How can that be a part of my story? How can that be a part of our story? Hope doesn't disappoint. If you were to turn to the book most famous for suffering in all of the Holy Scriptures, where would you turn? The book of Job. Look at what Job says in Job chapter 1. There once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and he stayed away from evil. Scripture's pretty clear there, right? I mean, this guy, it goes on in verse 3. In verse 2, it talks about um, how many... um, children he had and his sheep and his flocks and his goats and his female goats and the donkeys and all the everything that he had it gives you a a count of just the status of his wealth and where he was and it says that he was the best man in the east it's pretty clear an honest upright blameless man hey y'all he feared God He, he didn't I mean he didn't bring anything on himself did he And Job has the gumption to ask God why. Look at Job 38 and this idea here. God actually, as Job asks him, God gives him an answer. Gives him an answer. Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and cause the dawn to rise in the east? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth to bring an end to the night's wickedness? As the light approaches, the earth takes shape like clay pressed beneath the seal. It is robed in brilliant colors. The light disturbs the wicked and stops the the arm that is raised in violence. Have you explored the springs from which the seas come? Have you explored their depths? Do you know where the gates of death are located? Have you seen the gates of utter gloom? Do you realize the extent of the earth? Tell me about it if you know. God's getting a little passive aggressive here. Where does light come from and where does darkness go? Can you take each to its home? Do you know how to get there? But of course you know all of this. For you were born before it was all created and you are so very experienced. We approach suffering different in our day. And if you look, if you go to the civil rights movement in the deep south in the 60s and 50s and back, to colonial America and slavery, to other cultures around the world, to biblical times, you'll see that what's happening with us is vastly different. And there, there was an embracing of suffering and servanthood. And what we want is comfort and convenience. And in our day, what we battle with, what you and I battle with, is that we're on the center. We're at the center and all else, including God, if there's a God, is circumference. And God is doing here to Job what he needs to do to us. And the only thing that will keep us sane in this world as we grow and go through it and get older is that we've got to elevate our view of God. We've got to realize that there is a God and it is not us. And that we weren't there before. We've done none of the things that God could do. And he wants us to elevate our appreciation of that and our trust in him because that is so very true. Job's response in Job 40, look at it. I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? And what people want to tell me a lot in my life, including my wife, I will cover my mouth with my hand. They want me to do this. I will cover my mouth with my hand. I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. I am strangely comforted by that. 
Because I, I see people. I've read a, a lot of books. You, you can go to my library and you can see there are you know, liberal authors and Christians, and I don't say that disparagingly, and there's a section of just atheist writers. And I've read a lot of those atheist writers through the last three decades, and I've read uh, uh, their, their course and where, how they've ended their lives. And I've seen people, um, even in our midst, struggling with faith and therefore with despair and a lack of meaning. And I say it often, every time I talk about suffering, I share it with you, Bertrand Russell, in the book, Why I'm Not a Christian, You Cannot Believe in God and Sit at the Bedside of a Dying Child. And I would say, what is the alternative? In a recent conversation with an atheist at Broad Street, we talked about my trip to Cambodia and the killing fields. No doubt it's tough to see something like that and to see those who suffered, innocent, suffer. But if you have no room for God in the equation, then that's meaningless suffering and greater despair. And Job is saying, you know what? I cannot let what's wrong with me in the world keep me from worshiping what is right about God. And I will... I will I will fan the flames of my appreciation for who you are. There, are, there, were, there was an incident that happened several years ago when our daughter, Haley, was seven. I warned her today that I'd talk about her at the end of the sermon. She signed a letter, written letter of approval. But when Haley was about seven years old, on her mother's watch, she fell off a monkey bar and she broke her arm. Susan texted me and said, Haley hurt her arm. I think I'm going to take her to the hospital, maybe. Later, I learned that she had seriously, like her arm was hanging, like it was really bad. And we connected. And we began to explain that this pain, that we're going to try to alleviate the pain, but there would be some subsequent pain. There would be some things that doctors would do. They would poke and prod on her, and they would take her under. They would do an operation to correct this sweet little seven-year-old arm. And I told Haley a few things during those few days. The first thing that I told her is this. You're not alone. Remember the story of Daniel, Shadrach, and Abednego, and they were in a fiery furnace. And there was someone watching them. And I love this because this is a precursor of Jesus. Read the Old Testament thinking of Jesus always. And there's someone watching. They say, who's the, I thought you put three guys in the furnace. Hopefully you'll never say that around your house or place of employment or anywhere in the woods somewhere, okay? Words you should never utter. But I thought you threw three guys in the wood chipper, in the furnace. And the, one of the guards says, he says, I thought you threw three. I see four. Somebody there with them, protecting them. I told Haley, you're going to go through something. You are going through something, but you are not alone. Here's what's beautiful. And I get a front row seat to see some of you going through such difficulty, such suffering, but you're finding a closeness to God through it. You, you, you know his presence in that period, in that time, in that difficulty, unlike any other. You're, you're finding out what the scripture says. That there's a peace that passes all understanding. In your own human wisdom, it doesn't seem like it makes sense, but God is with you. He's guarding your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The second thing I told Haley is I know how you feel. Hebrews chapter 4 says, We do not have a high priest 
who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Some of you emailed me this question. It was Jesus tempted. He wasn't, was he? That disturbed some of you. Was he tempted? Did he feel the temptation that we felt? What's the answer? Yes. Hebrews 4, 15, 16. For we do not have a high priest who does not sympathize with our weaknesses. He was tempted in all manners just as we are, yet he did not sin. And therefore, we can, I love this, we can come confidently, boldly to the, love this phrase, to the throne of grace. Don't you love that? The throne of grace. The throne is God. The grace is what we need. And we can go confidently to it to find mercy, to find grace, to help us what? In our time of need. I told Haley, I know how you feel. Because you see, when I was her very same age, I was riding bikes with three guys, Mike and Tony Perkins and Boo Matthews. And Mike and Tony Perkins had a dad named Ray Perkins, who was a football coach, who would go on after being assistant coach at Mississippi State, he would go on to coach at Alabama, replacing Bear Bryant, and would be a head coach at the New York Giants. Mike and Tony and I were riding with Boo Matthews, and I didn't see a big hole, and I rode over it, into it, and flipped out and broke things and cut myself open and just had stitches galore. And Boo Matthews ran to the house, uh, wherever, whoever's house, 710 Persima Drive in Starkville. And he ran. I said, go get somebody, go get somebody. He ran to the house and he comes back to me about three minutes later. He goes, nobody's home. <laughs> Boo, go get someone else then, okay? And I almost bled out. It was a super bad injury. But I was able to tell Haley in the hospital that day, I know how you feel. And I don't know if you remember this, sweetie, but Haley, I let Haley touch the scars that I still have on my knee and on my head. I know how you feel. The third thing that I told her is pain has a purpose. I remember years ago being with somebody who was a college professor and they had a baby born with Down syndrome. And people gathered around to pray for them and their baby and their future. And the prayers were heavy, very forlorn and sad. God, just give this family your grace. And um, then I remember when... Um, Dr. Stedman prayed, not a medical doctor, but a friend of his who was a professor at the same university. And Dr. Stedman and his wife had a child that they loved with Down syndrome. Can you imagine how different Dr. Stedman's prayers were than all the other prayers that we prayed? Man. And he prayed, God, I thank you for the joy that this family is about to know that they would not otherwise ever know. Boom, 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 boom. Pain has a purpose. The Bible never says why we go through what we go through. But it gives us a promise that pain can have a purpose. And here's what's beautiful. This is a large setting with lots of people, but if we circled up, some of you, and maybe you can do this in your small group, you can share about something you went through that was very painful and you didn't believe it at the time, but you look back and you see that it had a purpose. And folks, we're walking by faith, not by sight. One day we're gonna walk by sight and one day we're gonna learn a lot. But you will, you, some of you will die not knowing why some of this pain is in your life. Are you, are you okay with that? 
It's just the truth. It's what the scripture teaches. The fourth thing I told my sweet Haley is hang on to your heavenly father, to your father, and don't let go. I remember that time of pain and she clutched me tightly and she had her face pressed right up against mine. Man, she was holding on to her dad. And that's what Habakkuk does if you'll look down at page 787. You see Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17 and 19. He hangs on. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no fruits, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Everything about what was happening in his life was just not good. But he said, I will rejoice. And notice he gave allocation in his mind not just for surviving, but for for thriving. Hang on. I didn't want Haley to go through that pain. I didn't want her arm to be broken. I didn't want her to have to go through a surgery and post-surgery. Never, you know, I didn't cause it. I allowed it. I didn't want it. One time when she was, you know, really hurting, I remember it, it just being hard for everybody. But the thing I remember is when she locked on to me. And that could be the beauty of pain in your life with your Heavenly Father. The fourth thing I told her, the fifth thing rather, is your pain will be over soon. And you know what I told her? I told her when it's done, we're going to go get some ice cream. Does it surprise you to know that of all the things I said to comfort her, that one had the biggest impact? And do you know why? That there's something in a child that needs something to look forward to. And you know what? There's something in big people. If you don't have it, you don't have it. But everybody needs something to look forward to. And here's how Paul put it. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And later today, read 2 Corinthians 4, the entire chapter. You'll see Paul's troubles and you will laugh in his face and you'll say, Paul, dude, none of that is light or momentary. But I would say this. Imagine with me uh, that everybody that had a fear of heights, okay? Who, who has a fear of heights? Just right, be honest. If you've got a fear of heights, Laura, I know you do. If you have a fear of heights, just raise your hand. Okay, I'm talking to you, not the foolhardy people. But let's say, let's just imagine everybody that's got a fear of heights, I told you, hey, we're going to go skydiving and I'm going to pay you 10 bucks to jump out of an airplane. Not a chance, right? If I upped the ante and I said, hey, we're going to go skydiving, you uh, folks are afraid of heights, and I'm going to pay you $1,000. Maybe a couple of folks would take me up on that, maybe. But if I said to you, scaredy cats, a million dollars, one million dollars, I'm going to guess that 95% of us are jumping out of that airplane. 
I know you got to see the money. You got to make sure it's authentic. You need that certificate of authenticity. You're going to hold it up to the light, get a banker. You know, I mean, you're going to need to know. But if you knew that it was a million dollars, I'm telling you, most of you, if not all of you, would take the job. Because we need to know, not just that there's something to look forward to, but that the reward is going to outweigh what we've been through. And I want to say to you, there'll be a day in heaven for everyone whose life is hidden with Christ and God, where you'll be able to say, you'll, you'll be on your 927.3 billion day of perfected bliss. And you will look back at that nine years of suffering of your 90 on earth. And it will truly then seem like light and momentary troubles. I want to close with Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice, this is John from the throne, saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. It'll just seem more real then, y'all. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Wiping away every tear, no more death, no more dying, no more tear-stained divorce papers. No more bloated stomachs. No more restaurant booths for one. No more motionless ultrasounds. No more tiny caskets. God, eternal weight of glory, a gift to all willing to trust him. Let me say this, just a couple of bullet points right at the end. We're going to suffer. Next. We're going to suffer and it's going to shape us. Somehow. The questions are these. Will we become bitter or better? Will we shut down or be opened up? More ignorant or more aware? Clinging with white knuckles to our plans or beginning to envision a new tomorrow? Pray with me. God, thank you for your presence, for being a father, and for being with us. Lord, I pray for those who this morning who are not just experiencing something philosophical, theoretical, or academic. For those who are having a hard time, who just cannot factually, logically, at arm's length, talk about suffering in that way because it's very real. God, I pray you raise up peace in our midst, presence, your presence among your people, that we would learn to confidently go to the throne of grace to find mercy and grace and help in time of need. Lord, I pray that we give you this time of worship now. In Jesus, amen. Would you stay in church and we're gonna sing and a few of us will be down front and we would love the opportunity today to pray for you.
any need in your life, any need in someone else's life, or you have a decision that you need to make, a decision related to our church, joining us here, taking a next step with Christ, whatever it may be, we want to be down front. We want to reserve this time for prayer. Everybody sing, and some of you come if God is calling you to take a step today. Let's stand and sing. If you have a child that you would like to dedicate that's never been dedicated, uh, we would love for you to think about dedicating them next Sunday. And if that's the case, we already have a few that already have signed up for that. But if you have not, please see Emily Hood or send uh, information on, on our website and she'll get in touch with you and tell you the next steps of that. But we're really excited about next week and what a beautiful picture that will be as we dedicate our children to God. Also, for some of you, the next steps for you here is membership. And if that's where you are today, we want to offer you an opportunity on May the 17th at 9.15 in the morning to attend our next prologue class. Prologue will be an opportunity for you to, to kind of hear uh, the, the vision of the church, the mission statement of the church, the doctrine of the church, and ask any questions that you might have as you pray through whether God's leading you here as a member of not. We have heard you. We usually have these on Sunday afternoon, but a few of you have asked if we had offered one on Sunday morning might make it more convenient for you. And so we're going to do that. So May 17th, please get online and sign up for that so we can start our list for prologue. That's not next Sunday, but the next at 9.15, uh, May 17th. And also, this Thursday is a National Day of Prayer. And along with Woodland Hills, we are offering you an opportunity to come in this place between 10 and 1 on May the 7th, this Thursday, and pray. Our staff had an opportunity to do this last year. It's a very special time. You'll get a sheet that will give you options for guided prayer. And it's just a wonderful time to kind of be still and know that he is God. So if that works with your schedule, we pray that you will come and be a part of that this Thursday. We are so thankful for you. We love you. Y'all have a great week. We'll see you next week.